This is CC Confidential, a selection of bonus clips from our podcast recording exclusively for conservative curious subscribers. In this episode, Michael talks about the pay it forward mentality of Silicon Valley. He also tells us why his Venice Beach bungalow has become a personal library and reminisces about where he spent the most time when he was at Oxford. He even lets us take a peek into 1517 Fund's shadow portfolio. Oh, and did I forget to mention he almost became a CIA agent? I think that's the spirit of the Bay Area at its best. I found when I moved there in 2010 that there was always a, a pay it forward attitude about, uh, you know, helping people find work, uh, bouncing ideas off them, refining ideas, making intros. I think it, it's part of the, it could be part of the tech economy, but whatever the reason is, is I think people are generally helpful. The, the presumption is, hey, how can I be helpful here and ask for nothing in return? Uh, sometimes I'd see a stark difference in that attitude in, in other cities where they wanted to, they wanted to uh, support tech startup ecosystems. And then you meet people in those places and, and, and the investors and people, they're always asking for something in return. It's always like, hey, if I make an intro to this person, what do I get out of it? You know, it could be an investor. It's like, oh, I want some finder's fee. And, uh, and that kind of that spirit can really dampen down the, the amount or the pace of innovation, I think. So something in the, that, that the Bay has right over the last 40, 50 years is, is developing that. And, and I think I just picked up on it. It's not unique to me is all I'm saying. And then the other thing, you know, maybe, maybe this was, you know, partly the reason I was excited to meet you was um, that there are very few conservatives or conservative-oriented people, or even you know people as yet as curious as as the name of your organization is, and so I also wanted to support that and get to know you more. And, and I knew there were people that you might enjoy meeting that I knew who who felt a similar who who fit a profile like that. I think a real freedom these days is is the ability to to speak your mind and 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 maybe even speak the truth. I think that's one of the dangers of the world we live in now. And one of the goals for for any aspiring intellectual, let's say, call it or, or writer or or anyone in the public sphere would be to, uh, you know, pardon my French, but yeah, I think you need fuck you money these days. <laughs> you can say, uh, you know, fuck you to uh, your business or the live a life of leisure. It's more in the sense of, hey, I have the foundation now where I can speak uh, truth to to a mob to power. Uh, to Twitter, whatever the case may be, um, because because those voices are sorely lacking right now. It's funny. It was like if you didn't have money, you could speak your mind. But now it's almost like you need to win monopoly to, <laughs> yeah, to say right. what you feel like, which is so bizarre. You would think like you know, free speech is something that everyone kind of has, but I guess definitely not on the West Coast. You were mentioning spending like three k a year on books. Has that gone up? Certainly in the last year, because I'm I'm in the process of writing a book. And I wanted to do a lot of research. I, I always pick too many books for that reason. Uh, so I, I doubt I'll get through them all, but I'm not sure how much I've spent. It could be more like 4K. I, uh, I know through experience that I've, I've found ideas that, that could be worth $100,000. And it's just, you know, one paragraph and one book from 1935. And I find it and then it, it serves me well. But the thing is going in, I don't know which book that's going to be. So I, I have to be broad in, in my search. The other thing is that I don't like libraries <laughs> because uh, I often want to have the book, but I'm not sure when I'll need it. 
And when I sit down to write, I actually use my my apartment is uh, is full of books everywhere. It, it's a mess. I'm I'm kind of like a hoarder, and it's this constant fight to to get through books and, and get them out. Back, you know, I donate them after I don't need them. Uh, but when I'm writing, it's actually like being in a library. So I'll, I'll stop in the middle of something, and then I'll remember, okay, I need to check these sources, and I'll go and I'll pull the books off the shelf. I'll, I'll thumb through them. I'll find what I need, and then I put it back. Uh, so the, the old concept of a library is actually, I think, quite useful and valuable. And, and it's why I have a hard time writing on the road. I find I can't just pop into a coffee shop and sit myself down and just start going at it. I, I, I can get some ideas going that way and it's good to build foundations and brainstorm that way. But, but I find when I'm actually in the, in the flow of, of writing something serious, I need, I need to have those references around. And do you use those multicolored sticky tab or index cards? I use a yellow legal pad pilot G207 because right. it's the right thickness has to be black. <laughs> Someone recently mentioned, you know, how libraries are like secular churches. Um, the, uh, Oxford is a, a collection of they call smaller colleges, and each college has its own library. So I was in, I was at Corpus Christi, and one of the you know, interesting pieces of history about Corpus is that its library is in an old chapel, and in that chapel is where the King James Bible was translated. I'd spend many many hours there, uh, and and I think the spirit of that lingered on even even to this day. Let me add an, another piece here that people don't know about about me personally. When I was in, in grad school, I uh, was looking for things to do. And, and, and one of the things I happened to fall into was I applied for a, a role at the CIA uh, as a political analyst. And, and that role is, is pretty much, uh, at least as advertised on the website, is, is you're a researcher in Langley, Virginia, writing about uh, geopolitical events and trends and trying to figure out what world leaders are doing. You know, my grad school work was on <laughs> moral political philosophy, but yeah, you know, in the back of my head, I just thought, okay, you know, maybe my background in research might might help here. So I so I put that application in. Some months go by, and then they reached out to me, and I took a phone call, and and they said, uh, yeah, well, we saw this application for the role of political analyst, but uh, would you be interested in the clandestine service instead? <laughs> I was like, eh, well, you know, let's see where this rabbit hole goes. So, so I, I, I said yes, and then I, I went through this job interview process with them, and uh, and it was fascinating. So I had to, in, in the middle round, I had to. Uh, they they sent me a list of books. Uh, the books were about the failure of the CIA in the Middle East. So this is like 2007. Um, you know, books critical of the CIA's work. I thought that was interesting. There were not spy novel on there uh, set in the Middle East. And then I had to write up essays. I had to take an IQ test. I had to take a personality test. One of my favorite questions on that is, on the, you know, these personality tests are always like on a scale of one to five, five agree, one disagree. And, and if they're testing for extroversion, you know this, it's like, hey, when I walk into a room, I feel, oh, that's full of other people at a party. I feel a lot of energy or I feel low energy. You know, obviously five, you're extroverted, one, you're not. But this test had questions I'd never seen before on that, on, on the personality test. One was, while I'm walking down the street, I feel an aura of power around me. Five agree, one disagree. <laughs> and so what trait are they looking for here? Is it some sense, a grandiose sense of self-importance? Ever since then, I've, I've uh, thought a lot about and, and read up on 
espionage and, and how they source talent for the CIA. And one of the interesting tidbits I found was that you might think, uh, you know, imagine the whole James Bond thing. You know, so the clandestine service is, is as close to James Bond as you're going to get. No one calls these people spies or uh, agents. That, that That's what amateurs call them. They're known as case officers. They often yeah. work abroad in embassies. And, uh, <clears throat> and so imagine, you know, this seems very extroverted to me. Is if this, you know, imagine like the James Bond thing where you're at an embassy party and the target is some diplomat and you're chatting up with the ambassador and his wife. And then, you know, this guy mentions that he loves skiing. You've never skied in your life, but now you got to pretend that you, <laughs> you love skiing. And so you arrange a trip the following weekend, right? Uh, that whole thing feels extroverted to me. But what I learned in reading up on the CIA's uh, search for talent is that they don't like extroverts because they're too good at getting chummy with people. They're so good at forming social ties that they don't understand other people and how they do it. And so what they do is the CIA targets uh, what they call compensated introverts. These are people who have huge levels of ambition, but are hung up on some level of introversion. And so it's their ambition that pushes them through to get to know other people. And those are the people who pick up on, you know, the gestures, the facial expressions, the emotional tone of a single passing remark. They're very good at reading those things because they've had to struggle with them for, in, in some sense. Oh, I also learned at the time that spies work in pairs. So there's the uh, case officer who is very good at manipulating people. Because remember, these people, their job is to get a friend to commit treason. That, you know, this person that they're trying to work with has to betray their country, their family, their employer into revealing some secret. And so to be good at getting someone to do that, you have to be very good at establishing rapport and trust rapidly. You have to uh, know how to manipulate people. Uh, it's so funny as they will. I, it's like I, I have collections of essays from the internal journal at the CIA and uh, they'll build a, a, a a diagram of some, you know, architecture of someone's vulnerabilities in order to know how to manipulate them. Like, does this guy have loose lips? Is he tired of his henpecking wife? Maybe his, uh, he's upset he didn't get a promotion at work and now he hates his boss. It's like all these kinds of things become the grips uh, to turn someone uh, to commit treason. All right. So there's that type of person who's good at that. He works alongside uh, or he or she works alongside someone else who uh, is uh, more like an editor researcher. And this person uh, is sort of collecting the puzzle pieces to, to think about the looming trends in the world and the region. So that they probably have some level of regional expertise. And, and so they're telling the manipulator person like, okay, here's the information we need in order to find out about what's this larger thing emerging in, in, in the world. Uh, and so I've actually, I, I, I take that model with what we do with 1517. We're not going to manipulate people. <laughs> we can't do that. And, and so here's the thing is like Danielle's EQ is way, way higher than mine. Uh, she is just so good at, at building rapport, understanding the needs of other people, relating to them, uh, that, that she's quite good at, at establishing that level of friendship. And then, and then I think the division of labor is, yeah, I'm more like that other person who spends a lot of time researching the, the larger looming trends. When someone comes in to pitch us, I, oh, we always insist we do things in twos because Danielle's going to have that perspective and then I'm going to have mine. And then slowly but surely we get the puzzle pieces and we don't even know what the, the, the box cover looks like. We don't know what the puzzle is. So it's like, okay, where do these fit? And uh, we're trying to see um, how the startup fits in that world and, and the founders in it.
you had any instances or many instances where, you know, you rejected somebody and then they... In the first year, we rejected a, a guy out of Stanford who went on to create DoorDash. Uh, he wasn't working with oh. DoorDash at the time, but uh, I can't remember what it was. Some kind of like social local thing he and his his teammate were working on, and w- and we passed. And he went on to found DoorDash. Um, it wasn't you know this has to do with applications and and ease of entry into them. Uh, one of the things I th- one not a miss, but uh, the Palmer Lucky apparently. Uh, thought about applying and then got scared or didn't think about it. And, and he, he would have been, if he had applied, that, that would have been tremendous. Uh, so, so those are the types of misses that really hurt uh, because it's, it, every investor will tell you this um, is that it's not the ones you invest in that fail that cost you. It's, it's the ones you didn't invest in that, that become successful with 1517. We keep better track of our shat. We call it a shadow portfolio. And then there are a few that, that we've passed on. Um, you know, I, I'd say my biggest miss is, uh, let's see, there was this, this young man I met at the university of Waterloo. Uh, I was on, you know, we do a lot of outbound, uh, recruiting in a sense. I would take office hours at the coffee shop. This young man came in, he was working on autonomous, uh, driving systems for golf carts, which, you know, it's kind of quirky, and he thought it would be useful to have these on corporate campuses or university campuses. And, and I, uh, I wanted to follow him and his trajectory. Uh, so some months pass, then he comes out to the Bay and he tells me he's uh, interviewing for YC. I'm like, okay, great. He gets in the Y Combinator. They actually keep running with this idea for autonomous golf carts for campuses. Um, and then at the end of YC, they came in to, to pitch us. And uh, there are a lot of things I don't like about Y Combinator. One of them is that they, they do a great job about getting people to, it's like they can, they've got this halo effect where there's a lot of money that wants to get in the YC companies simply because they're YC companies, irrespective of, of what they're making or where they're at. And so these guys came in like that and they're like, oh, we're raising this uh, seed round or pre-seed round on a, on, I think it was like an eight, $9 million value cap on a convertible note, meaning that's like a approximation of evaluation. And it's like, guys, you have no revenue. You're building golf carts. I, I can't, <laughs> you know, I, I think you're talented. Like you've got all the right stuff in terms of your uh, ability as founders and, and who you are, but I just, this price is too high. And so we had the pass. I, di- I did recommend that he become a Teal Fellow because he had dropped out and, and he did subsequently become one. But okay, fast forward a few years, a short history of the autonomous driving uh, industry. Uh, you, uh, the headlines you may recall is that um, this guy who works for Google quits. He, uh, Aaron Lewandowski, he was part of their uh, driverless team. And then uh, he starts a driverless uh truck company. So they were making a perception system for trucks. And uh, he makes a lot of progress there. He catches the eye of Travis Kalanick at uh, Kalanick, sorry, at uh, Uber. And then Uber acquires Auto, this truck company, so that this guy can work on, he can become the head of Uber's autonomy team. Well, then all hell broke loose because it turned out he had stolen IP from Google. Um, and, and that was the big court case. Okay, so what happened? This created a huge opportunity for the kid I met and, and worked with. They suddenly took their system, and instead of working on golf carts, they said, hey, now that no one's working on trucking, that's what we can do. 
And so they, they moved into that space and, and they're doing quite well. They got money from Sequoia and, and they're moving along. I, I think they're, you know, they're, they're past the series B company now. Uh, so, so, you know, that's a miss for me. What went wrong there? Well, I got, uh, I, I, I went through the YC stuff and, and the price seemed really, really high to me. And, and even though they had the, all the marks of, of, of being the types of founders we want to back, uh, the price was too high. And so, you know, I, I don't know that in any kind of decision making like this too, it's uh, you can't, you can't totally judge your decision making based on, on the outcome um, because you could have a good decision process and then the world just doesn't go your way or nothing is a hundred percent, nothing is certain. And so sometimes you can make good decisions and have bad outcomes and you can make bad decisions and have good outcomes. Maybe you get lucky, right? And so the, the, the challenge is figuring out, like, when you do see the outcome, how does it feed back into your process to improve it with the knowledge that, hey, maybe we made a good decision at the time, but, you know, the world cut a different way than we anticipated. And I sort of think that's what happened here. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, we didn't change our, our decision-making process too much on that. But, but we do keep track of these sorts of passes. I think it's important to do that so you know you know, a benchmark that you're operating on. It's so hard to improve on, on anything where the feedback cycle takes years like this, I think is difficult because you need that feedback. The, the quicker the feedback, the, the, the better you can improve. You know how to make changes quicker. But if you're making a decision on talent where, okay, you're backing someone and then it's like four years later where you find out if it's success or failure, that, that, that's pretty slow field maybe a way of breaking it down is if you think about i don't know pick your topic in science um even even the arts uh painting is like there are there are a number of concepts that are baked into the traditions of of any artistic field and if you as an artist are starting out in your career you're going to take some sampling of those concepts and probably blend them let's i mean just imagine you're pulling them out of a bag and then your creativity is going to derive is going to come from the extent that you're able to grab from other bags and maybe mix it with that stock of things, and, and maybe you invent your own. But it, there's always going to be that base level of ideas that you're working with.